There is a difference. You can see from their relationship to sin who's real and who's not. The new relationship that a true believer has with sin is shown by the pattern of his life. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. If someone were to film an average day in your life, what would they see? Someone practicing a life of holiness and faithfulness? Or someone pursuing a daily lifestyle of sinful choices? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part two of his current series, The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. We're looking at three primary ways that you can know if you're a Christian or not. Today, Tom will continue to examine the first of three tests found in 1 John chapter 5. The way you live your life, the habits that you form, and your manner of speech and attitude reveal whether or not you personally know the Lord. The question is, how do you live your life? Keep that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. John shows us how our relationship to sin reveals whether we are genuine Christians or whether we are false Christians. Now, I'm going to use that term, false Christians, a number of times, so let me define it for you. Here's what I mean by that. I mean people who say, I'm a Christian. Yep, I profess Jesus Christ. I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. So here's somebody who says, yes, I affirm all those things that the rest of you people affirm but who isn't really a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's evident by how they live. That's what I mean by a false Christian. Somebody who says, I'm a Christian, but really isn't from God's perspective. So, beginning with verse 6 and running down through chapter 2, verse 6, what we're going to see is a recurring pattern. Here's, Here's the pattern. The first thing John does is quote the false claim of a person who's a false Christian a person who says he's a Christian but isn't. So he quotes that false claim, and then secondly, he explains how a real Christian thinks and acts. That's the pattern. Let me show you how it fleshes out. Verse 6, if we say, here's the false claim. Verse 7, here's the real Christian. Verse 8, if we say, here's the false claim. Verse 9, here's the real Christian. Verse 10, if we say, here's the false claim, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, here's the real Christian. Now, the next portion is a little trickier because it's from verses, it's verse 4 is is the false claim, the one who says, there's your false claim, but the verse before it, verse 3, and then the first part of verse 5 is the real Christian, so it's divided a little differently. And then the last one is chapter, is chapter 2, the middle of verse 5, down and through verse 6, and there you just have the real Christian, and the false claim is implied, as we'll see, but not clearly stated. But that's the pattern that we'll see throughout. Now, from this recurring pattern, we learn how a believer's relationship with sin is different from someone who is a false Christian. There is a difference. You can see from their relationship to sin, who's real and who's not. So let's look at these differences. The new 
relationship that a true believer has with sin is shown by the pattern of his life. It's shown by the pattern of his life. A false Christian habitually lives in sin. A false Christian habitually lives in sin. That's verse 6. Let's look at their, their false claim. Verse 6 begins, If we say that we have fellowship with Him. Now, John changes the meaning of the pronoun we here. He's not saying now that he and the other apostles ever made this claim. Instead, he's simply including himself with all of those who claim to be Christians. We could paraphrase it like this. If any professing Christian says, and what John goes on to quote, is either an actual quote from the words of the false teachers and their followers, or at the very least, he's capturing their thinking. Literally, the text reads like this. If we are saying that we are having fellowship with Him. In other words, if we are consistently claiming that we are in the fellowship with God, that we have an ongoing relationship with God, that we know God, and then it goes on to say, if we say we are having that fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness. Literally, and in the darkness we are walking. I think you understand that walk is a common New Testament picture of a person's habitual course of life, their regular moral conduct, the entirety of their daily thoughts and actions. If we are continually walking in the darkness, in other words, if we live a habitual lifestyle that is characterized by sin, that is antithetical to the nature of the God who is light, whom we claim to know, then there's a problem because it shows us for who we are. Because guess what? Unbelievers are characterized by walking in the darkness. Listen to Psalm 82.5. The wicked walk about in darkness, in sin. Proverbs 2.13. The wicked leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter into the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. You say, okay, I get it. You know, unbelievers walk in darkness, but what does that look like? Well, let me show you exactly what it looks like. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says the same thing John is saying. He says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, those who are, who are characterized as being unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? They're not getting into Jesus' spiritual kingdom. They're not getting into Jesus' future physical kingdom. They're just not getting in. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, those who habitually live in sexual sin outside of marriage, nor idolaters those who worship other gods, nor adulterers, those who engage in sex with those who aren't their spouses, nor, and the next two words have to do with homosexuality, the one word effeminate has to do with the, the feminine partner in the relationship, homosexual has to do with the more masculine partner in the relationship, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. 
What is a reviler? Just go on the internet. You'll meet plenty of them. They're the people who spend their lives throwing out their hatred at other people, reviling in their language and and the way they treat people. Nor swindlers, those who, who built people out of their money, who take financial advantage of other people, none of these who are characterized by these sins will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list. It's a representative list. And then he says, verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. In other words, when a person comes to true faith, they're changed. They don't walk in those patterns of sin anymore. Go over to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Here's another list to help you sort of identify what walking in darkness looks like. Verse 19, Paul here is contrasting those who are unbelievers in the flesh with those who are in the Spirit. He says in verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. You want to know what somebody who's living an unregenerate life looks like? Well, here's what it looks like. The first three words are consumed with sexual sin, immorality, impurity, sensuality, just given over to sexual sin, idolatry, sorcery. That's the Greek word is pharmakeia, from which we get our word pharmacy, uh, in trying to connect with the other world or with in witchcraft and other things. They would use drugs to sort of induce that state. The next group of words have to do with relationships has to do with people whose lives leave relationships in shambles. It says, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. That's everything that goes with the party scene. And things like these, so this isn't a comprehensive list either, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice, there's the key word, who practice as a habit of life, an unbroken, unrepentant pattern of life, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, but the fruit of the Spirit. Here's how you know if you've been changed, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are, those are the qualities that mark a person who's been changed, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so, there you have the picture. So, back in our text, in chapter 1, verse 5, this is a person who claims to know God, but his or her habits of thinking, speaking, and acting are characterized by the kinds of sins we just read about, things contrary to God's very nature. By the way, this false claim in verse 6 may have arisen from the first century false teaching called pre-Gnosticism. Those false teachers saw all matter as evil. Since the body is matter, the body's evil, so they just excuse sin in the body. It doesn't really matter. You can't do anything with the body anyway, so let it sin all at once, and don't worry about it. It has no effect on your relationship to God. Well, there's not much of true Gnosticism around today, but you don't have to be Gnostic to hold this view. Sadly, American churches are filled with people who make this claim. Yep, I have fellowship with God. I know God, and they walk in the darkness. What's their real condition? Well, verse 6, he goes on to say, if that's your claim, you lie. This is John's response to if we are saying, such a claim is a lie. 
It's not just a mistake, it's a lie. Now, it may be a conscious lie. There are people who absolutely know they're not Christians, but claim to be for whatever reason, and they know in their heart of hearts they're not truly Christians. But I think for other people, it's self-deception. They've lied to themselves and convinced themselves that their life matches the holy God they claim. But regardless, it's still a lie. He goes on to say, and do not practice the truth. In other words, not only is their claim a lie, their lives are a lie. The present tense means day after day they are not practicing the truth. Their lives consistently fail to show an obedience to God's truth in the Scripture. To do the truth is simply to respond to it with obedience. You see, false Christians deny the truth of God by their sinful lives. My fear is that there are some in this church who claim to have fellowship with God, but who live in a lifestyle of sin. Can I just plead with you to, re- to consider your true condition? A verbal profession of faith in Jesus Christ does not mean that you are a Christian. It doesn't matter that you prayed a prayer in the past. It doesn't matter that you walked forward in an emotional experience. It doesn't mean that you cried at some point. That's not what it means to be a Christian. doesn't matter that you threw a stick in the fire, that you know somebody wrote in the front of your Bible the date you became a Christian. There are true Christians and there are false Christians. Jesus taught that many who claim to follow him don't. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, Many will say to me on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, I know you. And he says, I will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who work lawlessness. So let me just ask you pointedly, is there more sin in your life than holiness? Is there more disobedience to the Scripture in your life than obedience to Christ? Do you respond to the sin in your life by thinking, listen, I know God, I'm a Christian, and He's going to be okay with how I'm living? Do you think, I'm eternally secure, once saved, always saved, so I can sin, and it's okay? What that says is that you were never saved at all. A false Christian claims to follow Christ, but lives in a pattern of sin. On the other hand, a true Christian habitually lives in holiness. A true Christian habitually lives in holiness. Notice verse 7, the believers, the true believer's lifestyle. But if we walk in the light, if we are consistently living a pattern of holiness, if we are walking in the light as He Himself is in the light. By the way, John is saying something different there about God. In verse 5, he says God is light. In verse 7, he says God is in the light. Because God is light, He lives in the light. 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells in unapproachable light. What's the point? Because God's character is pure, His actions are pure. The same thing is true for the believer. If you have been changed in your inner being, then it will demonstrate itself in your outward actions. The true believer just as surely reflects God's holiness in how he walks or lives daily as the moon reflects the sun. The moon can't do anything but simply reflect the sun. The same thing is true for the true believer. Our relationship to sin has changed. Why? Because we changed kingdoms. If you're a true believer, you change kingdoms. Look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. The Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. 
In other words, if you're a Christian, when you came to Christ at that moment, God took you out of the kingdom of darkness and he transferred you to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son. You're in a different kingdom now than you used to be. And your nature is different than it used to be. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 5, 8 and 9. You were formerly darkness. Notice he doesn't say you walked in the darkness. He says you were darkness. That's before Christ. But now you are light. In other words, your very nature changed. Therefore, walk as children of light. The reason we walk in the light is because we're no longer darkness. We are light. We've been changed. Our nature has been changed. So the Christian has a new lifestyle marked by holiness rather than sin. Now notice in verse 7, John says that produces two results. The first result is we have fellowship with one another. Now you might think that means we have fellowship with God, since he's just been talking about that in verse 6, but that's not what he says. The Greek word one another occurs seven times in John's letters, always of a human relationship. So he says, because we're walking in the light, like God is in the light, we are having fellowship with other believers. Now, why does he say that true Christians have fellowship with other Christians and not fellowship with God? Because being in the fellowship with other Christians is a visible evidence of being in the fellowship with God. And this fellowship with believers implies fellowship with God. You remember verse 3? We have fellowship with both God and His Son and other believers. And the parallelism between verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, we have claim to have fellowship with God. In verse 7, we have fellowship with one another. So the two go together. He's saying both are true. If you are walking in the light, if your lifestyle is marked by holiness, you know you are in the fellowship both with other Christians and therefore with God. Verse 7 adds another result of our walking in the light. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, Whenever Scripture speaks of blood, understand this, it's not the physical fluid that flowed through the veins of Jesus that saves. When it refers to the blood, in both Testaments, blood stands for the blood of an innocent sacrifice whose blood has been shed. In other words, they have died as a sacrifice in the place of the guilty. So, when we say the blood of Jesus cleanses, we're saying the violent death of Jesus as a sacrifice is what cleanses. Notice how he says that this sacrificial death that reconciles us to God is the death of Jesus, his son. I love that. Jesus is the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. His son means he was also God's eternal son. This was written, by the way, to confront Serenthus, a heretic who was a contemporary of John's in Ephesus, who taught that the man who died on the cross was only a man. So John just confronts him and says, no, Jesus was God's Son. He had both a human and divine nature. It was the God-man who died on the cross. Now, look again at verse 7. What John says is literally the blood of Jesus, his Son, keeps on cleansing us. Now, that is so important because it makes it clear that walking in the light is not the same as spiritual perfection. 
Walking in the light is not the absence of sin. I mean, verse 9 says believers confess their sins. Verse 10 says believers don't deny their sins. Chapter 2, verse 1 says when believers do sin, they have an advocate. So walking in the light doesn't mean you're sinless. It means that the habit of your life is walking in holiness. In this context, cleanses means to make morally clean. You know, stepping back from this text, we all need spiritual cleansing. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Sadly, there are people who think they're going to get to heaven and say, The reason you should let me in, Lord, is I think my good deeds outweigh my bad ones. Well, listen to what Isaiah says. Your best day, your best act in your life is like filthy rags in the sight of God. You're not getting in on that basis. We need spiritual cleansing. This spiritual cleansing was Christ's goal. Titus 2, verse 14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify, to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. How did it happen? Well, God provided our initial cleansing through the gospel. It began the moment of salvation with regeneration. Listen to Acts 15, 9. He, at that moment, cleansed our hearts by faith. The moment you were saved, God cleaned you up. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, I read it a moment ago. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were cleaned. So this cleansing happens initially at the moment of salvation, but believers need ongoing cleansing because we continue to sin. And while we've been justified, our sins have been dealt with in, in, the, in front of the, the judgment throne of God, we now sin against our Father. Here's how Jesus describes it in John 13, 10. You remember he was washing the disciples' feet, and Peter refused and said, I'm not going to have it. And Jesus said, well, if, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Peter typically says, well, then give me a bath. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed, that is the initial cleansing that happens at salvation, needs only to wash his feet. That's the ongoing cleansing for the believer. But he's already completely clean. If you've already had a bath, you walk down the street there in Jerusalem, you just need your feet cleaned. We need our feet cleaned. How does that happen? Well, this ongoing cleansing that we need takes place through confession, repentance, and then a renewed commitment to obedience. Look at 1 John 1, 9. We'll get there, but look at it with me. Here's how this cleansing happens. If we confess, it, literally, if we are confessing our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and here it is, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The way this ongoing cleansing takes place is by confessing, repenting, and walking again in the path of obedience. And we're cleaned. But notice what it says. And the blood of Jesus, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. If the pattern of our lives is holiness, when we sin and when we confess it to the Lord and repent of it, the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Regardless of the kind of sin, regardless of the seriousness of the sin, regardless of the length of the sin, regardless of the depth of the stain that that sin leaves on our soul, listen, Christian, there is no sin beyond the power of Jesus' blood to cleanse. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you will confess and repent, 
you'll turn back. By the way, that's true if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ can make you perfectly clean. In the words of Isaiah, whiter than snow. That's what God will do to your soul if you'll repent and turn to Him. So here's the first test of whether you have eternal life, whether you know God. What's the pattern of your life? Do you habitually live in sin? Then don't say you know God who is light. Or do you habitually live in holiness? Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part two of The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Tom will have part three for you next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. You know, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.